This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. Doing worship my own way plagued Israel's history. In fact, there were very few good kings that reigned in the land of Israel, and they were all from Judah over Israel's history after the division. But I find it interesting that in 2 Kings 11 through 15, there are four consecutive kings, four consecutive generations that we read these kings, quote, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Well, that's good news. Israel had many kings, but unfortunately, there were only a few godly kings. Israel continually made the mistake of doing worship in their own way, neglecting the word of God. Today, Pastor Josh will be explaining that the only way you can come to God is by worshiping in spirit and in truth. Only with the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word can you truly worship. Remember, God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of John chapter 4 as he begins his message, How Doctrine Shapes Worship. Webster's Dictionary defines worship to regard with extravagant respect or honor. I have about a three-year-old chocolate Labrador mix. We found out more than anything she's just a mutt at our house. And I tell you what, there are times where that dog worships the ground I walk on. I get home from work. And she's just, ah, you know, that, that dog smile where their teeth kind of do this weird thing and they're wagging their, you know. And just, so, I mean, she's, if, if she could just be around me all the time, that's what she would want. And uh, her love language is uh, fetch. And that dog can be the most worshipful, adoring creature until it comes to her getting her way. And if she gets outside... If you have a dog, you know what I'm talking about, especially a lab. She gets outside. She becomes the most disobedient, belligerent creature to ever exist. If you don't play with her, she's not going to listen to you. The other night, it was, what, 23 degrees, 1 o'clock in the morning. I let her out because I thought she had to go to the bathroom. She's crying at the door. I let her out. Well, three hours later... She's out there making a ruckus, barking, you know, all the neighbors. And she, I'm out there in my shorts chasing her around at one o'clock in the morning, the yard, trying to get her to come into the house. The words rung in my mind of Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed the voice of the Lord more than the burnt offerings. And yet there is something about that, isn't there? That worship goes so far beyond uh, a feeling or an emotion or, or even a sense of love for God. That worship is, is an all-out obedient surrender Amen. of our lives. Amen. Israel's history is plagued by worship problems. 
If you go to Israel today, how many of you have been to Israel? A few of you? I hope to take you soon. Um, there is a, a place that you go to. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's called Tel Dan. It's where they believe the tribe of Dan uh, settled and when they, when they split. Uh, it's a long story of the history. But it's this insanely beautiful area. It's one of the seven headwaters of the Jordan River. You take this hike. It's really a beautiful hike. You can see Mount Hermon, which, is the, the, which feeds the Jordan River uh, in the fall and in the winter. It has, it's covered with snow. A lot of people don't realize there's like a ski resort in Israel. It's really an incredible place. And when you get to the end of this trail, you, you end up on some, at some archaeological digs where they have recovered a very, very important place in Israel's history. When the kingdom of Israel was divided, you had two kings. There was Jeroboam, who was in the northern kingdom with the ten tribes of Israel. You had Rehoboam in the southern tribe of Judah. Uh, and you had this, this division. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read an interesting story. I'll read it to you. King Jeroboam, who was of the northern kingdom, said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. These people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so he set one up in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places. And he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So what are we talking about? Jeroboam became threatened that Rehoboam had the temple, the center for Jewish worship in Jerusalem. And the people of the northern tribes didn't have access to that place, and he was afraid that the people, when they got a heart to want to worship God, they would go back to Jerusalem, and they would want to be reunified. And he, of course, that was a threat to his power and his authority. So he, what did he do? He created his own high place, it's called. It's an alternative venue of worship. And they found this place, and you see this metal structure there. That is actually the form of the altar. Um, how do we know that this is a high place? Because the dimensions of this place they found match the dimensions found in the Bible of this temple that was created. One was in Bethel, and one was here in Dan, far north. And what people would do there is they would go and worship God their own way. They'd make their own shrines, they'd make their own priesthood, and they would break God's prescription of worship. For in the old covenant, worship was confined to a space, the temple where God's presence dwelt on earth. That was the place that you would go to offer sacrifices physically. That's where the physical priests were called of the tribe of Levi. We talked about this in the book of Hebrews. But this problem of doing worship my own way plagued Israel's history. In fact, there were very few good kings that reigned in the land of Israel, and they were all from Judah, over Israel's history after the division. But I find it interesting that in 2 Kings 11 through 15, there are four consecutive kings, four consecutive generations that we read these kings, quote, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Well, that's good news. And then it's followed by this statement, all four of them, except it's always a problem, right? When you're like, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except 
that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Which goes to show even godly leaders have always struggled to do what is right when it comes to how people want to worship the Lord. From the beginning of mankind, God has established worship precedents that people have forsaken to do it their own way. And of course, that originated in heaven when Satan, the worship thief of all time, decided he wanted the adoration and the worship that God only deserved, and he infected mankind with that very thing in the garden, where God set a precedent. This is how you will worship me. These are the boundaries you will respect. This is how you will walk with me in the garden and in my will. And then Satan says, of course, there's a better way, and Adam and Eve took that bait and said, well, We'll make our own way to God. And then God established a worship through sacrifice. Abel got it right. Cain got it wrong. Then God established worship, worship presidents. Presidents? <laughs> worship presidents. Do not worship presidents, please. <laughs> um, that would be a very bad thing on your end. A worship precedent through the law of Moses. And what, 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 as God was giving his holy law to Moses on the mountain, what were the people doing down there with Aaron? <laughs> Creating an idol. So this is your God that delivered you out of Egypt. And then God set a worship precedence with the temple. This is where my name shall dwell. This is where my presence will dwell. This is where you and how you will sacrifice and the things you will go through. And time and time again, people bucked the system. Fast forward to God's ultimate and final precedent for worship. Jesus comes on the scene, the temple of God walking among men, the Messiah, God incarnate, and he is going to now communicate, this is acceptable worship that God is seeking, that a worshiper must adhere to if he wants to know and worship God in truth, and he has a conversation, you would think, if God is going to uh, expose, if God is going to reveal, this is the acceptable way of worship. Maybe he'll talk to the theologians. Maybe he'll talk to the Pharisees. Maybe he'll talk to the rabbis. Maybe he'll talk to his disciples. No, who does Jesus, God incarnate, reveal the truth about worship to? Samaritan woman at a well. It's okay, buddy. <laughs> Jesus had a divine encounter with a Samaritan woman. I'm going I'm <laughs> to... I'm going to try to bring all this all together. Just stick with me. Who had a few things going against her. Number one, of course, she was a Samaritan. So the Jews always considered the Samaritan half-breeds because they were only partially Jewish. And so they were on the outskirts. They were excommunicated from the community of faith and the community of the Jewish people. Secondly, she was a woman. And, and sad to say, in that culture, she was already being segregated and looked down upon by the men of her society. She didn't have a voice, so to speak, or a place at the table. And on top of that, she had a broken past, sorted past, and a, and a broken present, in which she would, had been married five times, and the guy that she was now living with was not her husband. So she was living in active sin against God. And Jesus, in this one moment, breaks every cultural precedent he breaks every social precedent. He breaks every spiritual precedent. He knows that his disciples probably couldn't even handle it, so he kind, of, he kind of cleverly gets rid of them. And he sits up here on a mountain near a well with a woman who is thirsty. 
And of course, the ex- the, what, it, what will be exposed is that this woman's need was not physical thirst, but a spiritual thirst. And it's not an accident that she asked him the question, where should we worship on this mountain? I just, you know, Jesus just happens to show up on the very space where they say this is a place we should worship God. Now listen, how does this all play into the doctrine series? I believe that worship or how we express our devotion to God or how we experience God is formed by what we believe about him. The arena of worship is a battleground. God deserves worship, Satan desires worship, and there's a battle over it for every single human being and every single human being, no matter where you're from, how you grew up, whether you had a lot or a little, whatever culture you're in, has this propensity to worship something. As spiritual beings, it can be said, we find fulfillment in worship. As worshipers, we make sacrifices on the altars that demand our affection. I would even say that the atheist is a man of faith and will make sacrifices upon his altar. So when we talk about Christian worship, by the way, worship in the English, it's compound word, I've shared with this, this with you before, but it's worth and ship. It's what you as a person attribute the greatest worth to, the greatest value towards. So when we talk about Christian worship, what did that, that's a statement of saying that Christ has the place of highest worth and value and priority in my life. But I think the next logical question would be, well, how does Jesus require us to worship? This is where doctrine comes in. I'll sum it up in this statement, and then we'll dive in. This morning, we'll see that the focus of our worship, that is the who or the what we worship, and the form of our worship, that is how we worship, will be determined and shaped by the things we believe about God. So again, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. It begins in its simplest form. Jesus is sharing his gospel, his good news, with a woman in need. She has been searching to fill the empty void within her soul by having relationship after relationship after relationship after adulterous relationship with man after man after man. No doubt she has been abused, thrown to the side, cast off from society, and she is lost in the sense of her spiritual direction. And he claims to her as he's sitting there by the well, he who drinks this water will thirst again, but he who drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. She's confused for a moment. Well, tell me where this well is so I can go get that water. She's thinking about physical water. And so Jesus is about to show her, no, I'm not here to talk about your physical need. Go get your husband. Wait a minute. Things just got really personal. And then things get really spiritual. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. Wait, wait a minute. The man you now live, now live with is not your husband. Okay, wait a minute. And then she makes this utterly profound statement, right? I perceive you are a prophet. You think? <laughs> you know? Later, she would go tell everyone, come meet a man that told me everything that's ever happened to me. And then this, this blows my mind. The conversation, as soon as she perceives that he is from God and that he knows about her life, all of a sudden, she doesn't care about the water anymore. 
What does she say? Jesus, let me ask you a question about worship. And she dives in. The Jews say you have to worship on Jerusalem. Our fathers say you have to worship on this mountain. Which one is it? I want you to notice two false assumptions the woman carried about the worship of God. And they, they weren't necessarily false. They were confusions, natural confusions. But here was the thought process. Number one, that true worship is defined by a religious formula. In other words, whose liturgy is correct? The Samaritans or the Jews? Whose form of worship is right? The way we say we should worship or the way that the Jews say we should worship? They worship the same God, but in slightly different ways. And the second misconception was that true worship must be confined to a religious location. On this mountain or in Jerusalem? You see, under the old covenant, the presence of God was associated with places. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Therefore, that's where God is, the Jews would say, and that's the only acceptable place to worship him. And they were right. Jesus even says, we, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans weren't accepted by the Jewish people. They weren't welcome into the temple worship. And so they had their own holy mountain. And they said, no, God's presence is here on this place. And this is the only place that you can truly worship. In verse 23, again, if we read it, Jesus tells us the answer to these two conflicting viewpoints. He says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, must, should, maybe, must worship him in spirit and in truth. A few things here. Notice Jesus says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If there are true worshipers, automatically that tells us there is a possibility for what? False worship to take place. Not only is God seeking the kind of people he's talking about here, it says God is looking for people to worship him in this way, but people must worship him in this way. So we see the shift. Jesus is saying that basically through me and through the sacrifice I'm about to make, true worship will no longer be defined by a physical location or a religious formula but by a spiritual act that's guided in the truth of who I am. He changes everything about it. So let's look in our remaining time in depth at these two points that are joined at the hip, so to speak. You can't separate them. You can't say, I just want to worship in spirit. You can't just say, I want to worship in truth. You have to approach God in spirit and in truth. So let's talk about this, shall we? First, worshiping in spirit. What does it look like? What's the implication to worship God in spirit? Well, a couple things. Number one, I think it means that worship is primarily a spiritual transaction between spiritual beings and a, and a God who is spirit. Jesus says this here, that God is spirit. So to engage God, you have to do it in a spiritual way and on a spiritual level. Many people today tend to define worship in the sense of rituals and religious practices. In other words, if you went to church and you sang a song or you recited a prayer or you did these certain things, then you worshiped. 
But what Jesus indicates is that the physical appearance, listen church, the physical appearance of worship does not equal authentic worship taking place. When we worship, Jesus makes it clear that our spirit must be engaged for the worship of God is a spiritual transaction. Listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. What kind of house? A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And now the image here is obvious. It's the image of a temple. Israel had a physical temple built with physical stones. It had physical priests and physical sacrifices. And Peter tells us that the church is the spiritual house of God, that we are living spiritual stones, offering spiritual sacrifices, and then we have all become spiritual priests unto God through Jesus Christ. In other words, here how, here's how we can maybe uh, set this in a picture. Before Christ's sacrifice, before Christ's spirit came into each of us, worship would go something like this. You go to the place where God is so that you can worship him there. And when you left, God stayed there and you went there. Okay? Now Jesus comes and he says, no, I have made you the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the household of God. You're offering spiritual sacrifices of praise, of worship, of your life, of your love, of your generosity, of your obedience to God day in, day out. So when you and I gather in the church, we don't come to worship God because God is in the church. God comes into the church in you and manifests himself through us as we gather together. It's an incredible promise that we have. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Why? Because they are the temple. They are the dwelling place of God in the spirit. So worship is a spiritual transaction. Secondly, and this might scare some of you, lock the doors. Worship, the worship of God is, contains spiritual experiences. Now, when, you, when some of you hear the word spiritual and experience together, you get nervous because of all the abuse that has taken place with experiences, spiritual experiences in the church. So many things have been done attributed to the Holy Spirit that have no marks of the Holy Spirit at all. And so people see these people doing these wacky and weird things, and they go, oh, that kind of scares me. I don't, want, I don't know if I want to be part of this whole experience-based Christianity. But here's the sad result. Many of God's people who belong to Jesus have become afraid of the Holy Spirit. Here, here, here's how I see it kind of divided in the church today. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul's talking about the movement and the ministry of the Spirit among corporate, the corporate body of Christ. And he says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And here's what I found. There aren't many people out there today that embrace both halves of this scripture together. You've never heard a truer word spoken than the message given by Pastor Josh Blevins as he spoke in today's edition of The Ascending Life. In case you're hearing us for the first time, we're a ministry out of St. Joseph, Missouri. 
And like so many outreach programs, it wouldn't be possible without the generous donations of people like you. All we ask is that if your heart was touched today by Pastor Josh's message and you feel led to further the truth of the gospel, would you consider clicking on the Giving tab located at our website, theascendinglife.com. If you're interested in getting to know us a little better, go to the About link located at the top of our page, theascendinglife.com, or watch us online via Facebook. While you're there, check out all the other avenues to get into God's Word. There's even some options for when you're on the move. Under the Media tab, you'll notice links to podcasts and our YouTube channel. That website again is theascendinglife.com. As it's our desire to point you to Christ, it's also our wish that you would simply feel free to talk with us if your heart is heavy with life or full of praise. Just dial 816-279-2090. That number again is 816-279-2090. We look forward to hearing from you. Friends, there's no better place than to be here learning about the life-giving Savior who is Jesus. So, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for taking the time to listen to this broadcast of The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing